Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dying Light. I am your host, Alex, and we are concluding Pauline Eschatology today. Finally, we've wrapped up another segment. I am excited because I feel that we have just continued to plow through the content. And, and, I, and I say that because we literally just wrapped up the Olivet Discourse a few weeks ago. Now... Let me explain to, you know, we we're only spending three weeks looking at Paul's, you know, um, eschatology. We're not digging into uh, a, a, a really deep view of it. There's a lot that Paul writes. And, and I think we've covered it greatly in the first two episodes on kind of how he uh, engages in in dealing with uh, the end of the times reviews and and. We really looked at last week at kind of how Paul is a very has a very pastoral approach, because let me tell you this too: being a pastor and you are confronting a church, and we get into conversations with our congregants, we would have to not go to the far extreme that you know these things are all about the end of the times, and or we would have to kind of write a, a, a or you know speak through or however the conversation may go um tackling the things that people have misconceptions fears worries anxieties all of these types of things because real people have that stuff now the difference between today and what paul dealt with paul didn't have the whole written bible in front of him paul was writing the bible he wrote a majority of the New Testament. So he didn't have all of his stuff. And as we've looked at the last two weeks, he didn't have the letters to first, uh, the, the letters first and second Thessalonians. He didn't have the letters first and second Corinthians. He didn't have any of that. And so he hadn't written to any of these churches yet, though he had planted the church in Thessalonica. Uh, and that's why we get these two letters to that church as a letter of reassurance. And so the church was um, 
having difficulties accepting the fact that these people in their congregation have passed, their family members have passed. And so um, what we get is a reassurance that, hey, at the resurrection, your uh, congregants, your family members, those who have passed will rise when Christ returns. It's not talking about a rapture. I'm sorry. I know to burst your bubble, but it, it, it would be using the text mis- incorrectly. It really would be if we were to state the fact that this is specifically talking about a rapture. We just don't really get that in Pauline eschatology. So if we're looking at it from a modern lens, we have all of Paul's writings. We have the words of Jesus and we have the Old Testament. And so we can put together the bigger picture and come to the, in front of the congregation and have a discussion. And interestingly enough, last Wednesday after our Lent service, I stayed around and talked to a couple of my council members, and we had another like hour conversation really on the end of times. And some of the things that were kind of said in this conversation were focused from a very dispensational perspective. And so in order not to, you know, stomp it down and say they're wrong, because I can't do that as a pastor, um, I had this, you know, kind of overarching conversation with them and trying to walk through and explain things and kind of how I've come to understand it. And, and it turned out to be a really good conversation. And we, whether we came to a mutual ground, we didn't, I mean, the conversation wasn't really concluded, but we definitely had some interesting dialogue in reflections to the current world events and what does the Bible say? And so we, we worked through some of that. Now we will talk, uh, more in depth about some of this stuff as we get into the book of Revelation here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we will look at uh, Peter's letters and Jude next week. And so we will continue to have these conversations on this show and come into, come into it from the most unbiased position possible. Granted, there are some things that we do have to take a position on, and we have, but at the end of the day, we have to try to handle the scripture properly and not hold to you know, any sort of position, because if I were to look at this, say, from a dispensational position, I would have instantly jumped on the bandwagon that Paul's speaking about a rapture. The text is very clear. It's right here. Those are going to be called up and, you know, he's going to come back and all that. But we have to understand that this is a correlating text back to Matthew uh, 24 and 25, where Jesus is actually talking about the son of man returning. So again, context matters and understanding kind of the arch of uh, scripture, the arc of scripture and how it implies to us and how can we read it and understand the entire redemptive plan of God. So we do have to take some positions sometimes and we do so very lightly and delicately because we don't want to offend people. But again, I think if we were to read these two letters and, and make a statement that the rapture is clear right here in scripture. I think we'd be doing an uh, injustice to the rest of scripture. So with that said, today we're going to conclude Paul's letters. We are going to look at the judgment of unbelievers. And we're going to look at the future of Israel a little bit. And we're going to look at some Romans 9 through 11. And we're going to talk through um, how that plays into Paul's work on the end of times. So 
Ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you for tuning in. We are um, a listener-supported show, so if you feel that you want to come alongside this ministry and help us out, for as little as a dollar a month, you can join this ministry in supporting this show. We are on Patreon, and now, even through Acast, you can give small one-time donations or whatever size you want. It does not matter. Uh, I just put the recommended for like, I don't know, whatever, it was five or ten bucks. It doesn't matter. But you have that ability now, too, uh, through the show to actually give. So uh, there's a little commercial um, uh, right off the top of the, you know, before the actual show starts that kind of gives you a little commercial or whatever on it. So I thought that was kind of neat that they started doing that. But, uh, again, we're listener-based, listener-supported, and I do this show for you. That's the whole purpose. Um, I've got 43 Patreons who have um, committed themselves to coming alongside this ministry and contributing and helping out. And because of that, I am deeply gratified, uh, grateful for them. And you guys have done uh, so much to help move the show. And as I do this recording right now, uh, I'm actually video recording too. So prior to the actual start of the show, I did like 15 minutes um, prelude for them, exclusive for them. And they also get to see all the blunders and bloopers that I have throughout the recording of the show. But one of the things I really said in that to them is is just how amazing it is that they have come alongside and started to, you know, support the show. And, you know, I, I get so much to from them in terms of benefits. But really what I try to do is pour back into them. It's not about the money for me. It's about this community that we've formed. And we've got a great group of people on our Discord server that we can have amazing conversations with. We have an Instagram chat that we can come in and have great conversations with. And I've invited a lot of them to be on the show. Most of the guests that have been on the show recently are all Patreons. And they have supported the show one way or another over the course of time. And so that is one way I can get back to them. Plus, I get this little video recording of all all the things that I do. So, again, uh, if you guys are interested, you can um, check out the links on Reformed underscore Lifestyle on my Instagram page. And uh, I have the links actually in the show notes that you can jump into and look at as well. Or you can DM me and ask me any questions about that. So that's one of the biggest things for, for me with this show because it's not cheap to run a podcast and it's not cheap to uh, get equipment to run a podcast. I mean, we, we've got to have uh, the mic and the, and the pop filter and the stand for the mic and we've got the recording software. And as I'm doing the video, I've got to have the adequate lighting. I've got to have my Logos Bible software up on the screen. So that cost me uh, some money early on. Um, so all of this stuff takes an investment and, and because of these 43 individuals, uh, I am able to produce this show and they have been the crux to why we're driving forward. And mainly because of them, they're the reason the show is still moving because we could have easily concluded undying light when Paul and I split, I could have easily just wrapped it up and said, I'm done. And we could have let the show go and, uh, kind of perish. And I didn't want that. I wanted to continue producing content, and I feel that it's a necessity, especially in today's day and age, that we have uh, uh, sound biblical shows out there. And there are many of them. There are great shows out there. And uh, I am grateful for them and their work to the ministry. And uh, I like to say that I 
hopes to be a part of that and re and really what I do and bring to the table. Granted, we are really right in the middle of this long series on eschatology. We are, uh, I think this will be episode 26 or 27, somewhere in that ballpark for this entire show series. It's long and we've got, I've factored at least 22 or 23 more shows after this, for sure 21 in the book of Revelation, one for Peter and Jude, and potentially more depending on how the content really gets pulled out on Revelation. Now, I've, I've looked at it. We're going to split it into seven sections with three shows per section, and uh, that is uh, um, that is really the the future right and so while we don't really get into a lot of theological discussions or topics we're going through scripture and we'll, we'll probably do some of that stuff down the road we'll we'll have a show maybe on some uh topics that tend to get uh you know talked about often on social media so we might do bonus shows on that but the crux of the show is literally to walk us through scripture and to see how scripture plays into our lives so now that I've kind of babbled on for a little bit, kind of giving you a pretext of what's coming, we're going to look at Paul's conclusion today. And in that, we're going to um, uh, tackle a couple of things that often get uh, maybe a little bit misunderstood. We're going to look at some, we're going to look quickly here in a minute uh, at the judgment of unbelievers. And then we're going to look at the future of Israel, and we're going to tackle whether all of Israel is saved. Now, I do have to admit, in Paul's writings, we have spent an exorbitant amount of time in the letters uh, to the church in Thessalonica, and we've looked at uh, the, tr- the letters to the church of Corinth, and uh, we'll probably look a little bit maybe at Galatians and, uh, and Romans today. So... We haven't got into all of his other letters because they just frankly don't give us the the viewpoint and what we actually need to understand this, uh, this particular topic. Paul has phenomenal writing elsewhere that covers other topics, but for the point of this show series, this is where we're kind of planting our flag. Now, in all of that, again, as I stated, this is not an exhausted list or look at Paul's understanding it's just not there's just so much content again same thing and as we went through the gospels same thing when we went through the old testament there is much more out there than we would have to uh, understand what's really going on so with all of that let's dig into what we have today so we're going to start with the judgment of unbelievers because it's going to kind of you know, it, it pops up and I think it's helpful to understand what really is going to happen to these individuals who do not believe that Christ is Lord. So we find ourselves here in uh, the letter of Second Thessalonians and we're going to look at the first chapter and we're going to uh, start to unpack this and um, we can look at the first five verses or the, uh, starting with verse five and uh I'm going to read through this text here. I think we talked a little bit about this last week's show, but we're going to um, kind of give some context to it. So I'm going to start, read verse 5 through the end of uh, chapter 1. Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to to repay with affliction those 
who uh, afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us who know the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in the flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, uh, to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every, uh, every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the uh, verse 5 to uh, verse 12 to conclude the chap- first chapter in Second Thessalonians. Uh, so one of the most consistent features that we find ourselves in Paul's gospel is that unbelievers will face a future judgment. We, we, we get that. We know even from what we talked about uh, in Matthew 25 that Christ will separate the sheep from the goats. Well, who are the goats? Well, those are the unbelievers. We've discussed that in depth with that show. The decision uh, as to whether one should believe in the gospel is not an idle one. The destiny of human beings is literally at stake. One of the most developed statements of judgment of the wicked appears in these few verses here that we've talked about. The judgment, or uh, kairos, as the Greek states, is inflicted on the righteousness and is uh, on unrighteous as designated as righteous. So this is a judgment placed on the unrighteous. That is a righteous judgment. So those who are outside of God's people will be punished righteously, not because of anything other than the fact that they are sinful people who have rejected uh, God's word and God's people. And sadly, they persecute God's people. And so, again, they will face the judgment that is due to them. Uh, postmoderns tend to find any reference to judgment repulsive and unworthy of a loving God. Paul, on the contrary, thinks that God's judgment is righteous, which implies that the future or the failure to inflict judgment would render God unrighteous. Let me repeat that because this is the problem with modern Christianity. Postmoderns, <clears throat> people mainly in the church today who go to these big, uh, big box churches and hold to, you know, the God is love, he would never do anything, never punish anybody type theology, they tend to find any reference of judgment repulsive and unworthy of a loving God. Paul, though, on the contrary, thinks that God's judgment is righteous, which implies that failure to inflict judgment would render God unrighteous. <clears throat> this is this is the truth, people. People outside of God or outside of the understanding of what Scripture conveys to us will come to the argument that God is, is love and he would never punish anybody. God wants all people to be saved. That's the, you know, the text that kind of throws is thrown back at us. Well, sadly, not all people are saved. And the text that they're using is written by Peter and Peter's writing to believers saying that God wants all of the believers to be saved. Well, that's pretty much common sense that those who are 
of the elect, those who have been chosen by God, who have heard the word spoken and understand and love God and worship God, they will be saved. Those who are outside, those who persecute the church, those who hate God, those who reject him will face judgment. That's just, that's just what scripture says. We can read through the Psalms and see that God will punish the wicked. God will punish those who reject him. So this is what scripture states. This is the punishment and the judgment of unbelievers. The deviation between Paul and contemporary thought is evident precisely here. Many today would not be troubled if God overlooked most human sin and included all in salvation. Hmm. Funny that is stated there because, again, people want to think that God is just going to disregard our sin. God is going to disregard our designation in life and our our disposition to our sinful nature. And he's just going to save us anyways. So what do we have to do? Who cares about living righteously? Who cares about being obedient? Who cares about anything, right? God's just going to save me. I'm already in, in that bucket, right? No. Paul, on the contrary, thinks God's righteousness is manifested precisely because he inflicts judgment on unbelievers. So those who are disobedient, those who do reject God will face judgment. And so it continues, you know, in all of this. And we get this idea that these individuals will be facing a future judgment. And that is written all through uh, Paul's letters. And it usually, uh, is without extended comment. Its pervasiveness, though, signals an importance in his thought. He often speaks to those who are perishing, as he notes uh, often in First and Second Corinthians, and again here in Second Thessalonians. The word "perishing" designates the future destiny of those who reject the gospel. Instead of being saved, they are destined for destruction. Those perishing despise the word of the cross and find it foolish. To them, the gospel is a terrible aroma. That drives them away, for it is not an aroma of life, joy, and peace, but carries the stench of death. Satan has blinded their minds of those perishing so that they do not perceive the beauty of Christ and the gospel proclaimed by Paul. So, uh, bluntly stated here, we have the unbelievers who have been blinded. They've rejected God, and uh, they are perishing. Now, we also have to make a clarification because I had made a mention way, way back in at the beginning of this show, not this particular one, but the show series, that um, we would be referencing other shows. And this is going to be one of those times that we look back to the episode on hell that we did with the Bible Dingers, where we talked about annihilationalism. That is this notion that the... Um, the believers will be essentially destroyed, eliminated from history, from the universe. Their soul will cease to exist. They're annihilated. Um, we don't generally get that type of um, writing that they will be annihilated. There, I think the only, there's only a couple of verses, I think, in all of Scripture that really points to that. And it can, can be also translated or, you know, viewed a little differently than just straight up annihilated. So we talked a little bit about that in uh, more in depth on that particular show. But uh, when we talk about destruction, um, we should look at this. The noun destruction 
uh, is also used to refer to those who are destined to receive God's judgment. Opposition to the church is a sign of destruction, and conversely, suffering as a part of the church is a sign of salvation. Paul weeps over the presence of opponents in Philippians. He considers them to be the enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. And they think about the things of the earth because of these things, their end or outcome is destruction. Destruction is reserved uh, for those who do not cling to the cross of Christ as their only hope for righteousness and vindication on the last day. Again, a throwback to when Christ splits the heavens. Those who have righteousness uh, that is their own will find it insignificant to stave off God's wrath. They are truly enemies of the cross. Those who long to become rich and crown and crown money as their God have the same unhappy destiny. For in their case, the end is ruin and destruction. Now, I, I would also like to position this argument, too, that we we could state very easily that they will uh, face eternal wrath, as we talked about in that episode. We can state that they talk about, uh, um, you know, the annihilationist piece. And again, you go back and listen to that episode. We unpacked all of these views, the three views of it, and uh, we did so extensively. Uh, it's a long show, so make sure you've got time to really just sit and, and listen to how we unpacked it. And the Bible dingers did a fantastic job walking us through these views. And we talked it from a biblical perspective. And is it something that we could literally cling to or believe in as uh, believers that the unbelievers will face these things? But what we can see in Paul's writings is that those who are unbelievers will face judgment. And we also get a little bit of text here and there that believers themselves will have some sort of judgment that they will face, but we can stand before God and claim to his promise that we are made righteous. We are new creations and we no longer will face the wrath that unbelievers will. So that's kind of what, what Paul's view in a nutshell is. Again, we can spend much, much more time looking at it, but I think for the sake of the show and concluding this um, in, in a relatively normal time frame, I think it's adequate that we move on. And again, there's plenty of resources, there's plenty of scripture, there's plenty of books written out there that we can go in and dig into and, and expand upon and understand. But at the end of the day, I think it's just good to kind of have a basic understanding. And then from there, if we desire to learn more, we do so. So now we get to the last little crux here of Paul's eschatology, and it's this view of, is Israel saved? Is all of Israel saved? Is it only a portion of Israel? How does this kind of function with his writing? Now, we know that Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a very, very intelligent person, extremely intelligent. And we see how Especially, uh, we see how, especially in Romans, that he weeps over uh, his fellow Jews who have rejected Christ. And uh, we're going to look at some of that here. And uh, so we want to kind of try to unpack this a little bit and see what exactly does Israel do here in the end of times? What role do they play? So the question is being urgently asked today, especially subsequent to the Holocaust, right? That was a big deal for the Jews and the 
1940s uh, as World War II raged on, the late 30s and early 40s, uh, for some people believe that Christian theology is at least partially responsible for the horrible, evil perpetration against the Jews. Paul's own conception of Israel is quite complex, defying simplistic, uh, de- defying simplistic formulations. At the onset, we must remember that Paul himself is a Jew, as I have stated, and that he conceived of his faith in Jesus uh, as the Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise to the Jewish people. That's what Romans 1, 1 through 4 state. Those Jews have uh, reduplicated Jesus, according to Paul, who were, try- who were not true to their heritage. They were like the Jews who strayed from Yahweh and were exiled to uh, by Assyria and Babylon. So Paul looks at Christ as the Old Testament fulfillment to all of the promises of a future Messiah. In that, Paul weeps over those who have rejected Christ. So we start to unpack how Paul kind of drops little pieces of that in his writings. Those who are truly sons and daughters of Abraham will put their faith in Jesus as a Messiah, as Galatians 3, 6 through 9 state. Accordingly, Gentiles become a part of this family of, of Abraham if they believe in Jesus as a Messiah. Paul makes it very bluntly uh, in his letter to Galatians, uh, to the church of Galatia and to the church in Rome. This is the fact that Gentiles have been grafted in. And that was always the plan. This wasn't just a plan B. It wasn't a, you know, um, secondary or, or anything like that. This was always the plan when God promised to Abraham that his descendants would number the stars. And not only just his descendants, but the promised Messiah that was given to Abraham in Galatians 15 or in Genesis 15 was that Christ would come and save the multitudes. It wasn't just the nation of Israel. Israel didn't exist at this time period. And as Christ was the promised seed, though not directly given in this context, we know that as Paul writes in Galatians, that this promised seed was in fact, Jesus Christ. We know that, Gentiles were on the mind of God, that they were going to be a part of those who uh, he would elect to be his chosen people, not just Israel. And we see that start to sprinkle in through the Old Testament that there are some who are outside of the nation of Israel who were uh, saved, who knew the God of, uh, of Israel, who knew Yahweh. And so as we get into the New Testament, we see that Jesus is traveling and he's preaching. He makes notions sometimes that he comes first to uh, the house of Israel and then to the Gentiles. His mission was to preach to Israel because they had flat out rejected God's word. And he knew that they were rejecting him. And that is why he is very pointed in his phrasing that I have come first to the house of Israel to proclaim the good news then to the Gentile nations. And that was what Paul's charge was, was to go into the Gentile nations and preach the gospel. He was essentially the apostle to the Gentiles, while the other apostles worked on the Jewish people and converted many Jewish people to Christ. Paul was to go out into the Gentile regions and uh, proclaim the gospel and plant churches. So we get this understanding of why Paul is 
uh, in these regions. And and in a lot of these places he goes to, they're mixed between Jewish people and uh, Gentiles. And so there's oftentimes that he's writing to these churches that have Jewish people either in the congregation or in their communities that have rejected Christ. And so he's you know, writing these letters to these churches and lamenting over this idea that they have flat out rejected Christ. So Paul does not criticize his Jewish contemporaries simply to attack his foes or to win cheap debating points. What he does, though, uh, he says of his Jewish contemporaries can be traced to the Old Testament itself. The history of Israel is marked by a winnowing process. Even in the wilderness, few believed, but most failed to trust in God. The days of judges were ones in which the hearts of many of Israel drifted away from Yahweh. The prophets likewise taught that only a remnant truly belonged to God, while most of the nation turned to other gods. In Paul's day, a remnant of Israel was believed in Romans 9.29, but a majority turned away from the living God. So if you read the Old Testament, you'll pick this up, that Israel is often disobedient. Why? Because a majority turned to their own gods or turn to pagan gods that uh, surrounding nations influence them with. And so we see that even the prophets taught that only a remnant uh, of Israel was truly to be saved by God. Paul scarcely saw himself, though, as anti-Jewish or as a deviating from his ancestors and in his invictives against some fellow Jews. Those Jews who did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah were culpable before God and guilty of sin, just as the wilderness generation was judged by God for its idolatry. As he states in uh, 1 Corinthians, the problem with Paul's Jewish contemporaries was that they did not keep the very Torah they taught. And that he writes that uh, especially here in Romans chapters 2 and 3, the famous Romans text 9 through 20 in chapter 3. Paul did not think their loyalty to the Torah extended his exceeded his own. Instead, he believed that genuine loyalty to the Torah, which is the Jewish law, would lead to faith in Jesus as the Messiah because he fulfills what the Torah promised. That's exactly right, that Christ was the fulfillment to the law. Doesn't do away with the law until this world passes away, but he is what the Torah promised. Some Jews, despite their failure to keep it, use the Torah as a means of propagating their own righteousness. Paul rejects such law righteousness because it is founded on an illusion and fosters idolatry. It is founded on an illusion because no one can keep the law, Romans 7 states. Uh, It promotes idolatry. For those who are devoted to the Torah begin to think about uh, that their own righteousness is actually pleasing God. So we get into this big theological debate and uh, around works and your ability to keep the Torah. And Paul's very on tap saying that you can't. Nobody can. Only Christ did. And Christ is actually the fulfillment, the promise of what the law gives. And because you can't fulfill the law, because you can't obey it, because you can't upkeep it, it should drive you to Christ. And that was what Paul was trying to get at. As he's writing these letters that nobody has obeyed God's law, we have a Messiah who is there waiting for you. And uh, he is actively being preached that only Christ brings salvation. And because those who cling to the Torah can't get past their own self-righteousness, 
they, in a sense, are rejecting God's true purpose to the Torah. Even though they think that they have kept it, they, in fact, fail to understand the whole premise. And again, Paul continues to state here as in Philippians 3.2, those Jews who promote Torah and circumcision therefore are labeled as evil workers. A curse or anathema is pronounced to those who proclaim a gospel that demands circumcision. That's a big piece in the early letter to in Galatians chapter 1. Those who insist on circumcision for salvation are classified as false believers, Galatians 2.4. They promote uh, Torah observation to avoid uh, the scandal of the cross and to carry uh, favor inside of others. So Paul writes, especially uh, here in Galatians, that those who are trying to push this narrative that you have to be circumcised or that you have to continue to uh, obey the Torah in order to be saved, he's saying they're evil workers. He's saying that they are a curse especially for those who demand circumcision. They, he actually uses the word anathema. And funny enough, that's what the Roman Catholic Church states when we proclaim that we are justified by faith alone. Guess what, guys? We have been accursed by the Roman Catholic Church. Thankfully, we know that they hold to a very different gospel than what is proclaimed here in the New Testament. Sadly, I wish that we could actually bring them back into the fold, but I think as what Paul's writing here with Israel, we know that not all of those who attend a Christian church or who have a specific denomination of Christianity is the right Christianity. And then you would be challenged, well, what makes you think you're the right Christianity? Well, because I look at what Scripture says, and that's what I go with. I adhere to what Christ has said. I believe the promises that he has given, that my sins are forgiven, and that my salvation is only found in him. That's it. I don't have to do anything else. Now, because I have that, I am free to do my good works, and I am free to love my neighbor, and I'm free to walk out my salvation. But I am not held to my sin. My sins are forgiven. The Roman Catholic Church and some of these other denominations would try to convince you otherwise. So what we get to now is this wonderful text here in Romans 9 through 11. Without reading these uh, three chapters, we are going to kind of look at it in a high level. As Paul really starts to push forward this, this uh, narrative that the remnant is true, there is only some saved, and that uh, Israel does have a place. So what we should notice is, at the onset of Paul's fervent desire here in these few chapters is his uh, first fellow Jews to be saved. Romans 10, 1 says explicitly, and in Romans 9, 1 through 3, the same idea is communicated in an indirect and pungent manner. Paul speaks in a manner uh, analogous to that of Moses, most willing to be cursed for the sake of salvation for Israel. The harsh words against his fellow Jews, though, back in 1 Thessalonians, must be integrated with what Paul says here. For the threat of impending judgment does not exceed or exclude a desire for future salvation, even when the writer knows that some will never repent. Much of the content in these few chapters has been um, already priorly explored as I'm reading through some of the notes that I have on this book. And again, if you're looking to get a good in-depth kind of understanding of Paul's theology, uh, this book that Paul, the apostle of God's glory, it's a, it's a meaty read. It's like seven or 800 pages or something like that, 500 pages or something, but it's, you know, he, 
Thomas walks through all of Paul's uh, theology and he unpacks it really well. And so um, he spends an, a considerable amount of time <clears throat> unpacking the text in Romans and uh, really starts to try examine <clears throat> how Paul portrays this remnant in uh, uh, in Israel. So what we have to really start to get here is what is in fact being said is all of Israel saved. Well, the explanation of Israel's role comes to a climax with the revelation in the, of the mystery of Romans 11, 25 through 27. Let's read that. Least you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fulfillment of the Gentiles has come. In this way, all of Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish the ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this mystery stems from an apocalyptic background, as we see in Daniel and other writings, denoting a secret plan of God that has previously been hidden and has now been revealed. The mystery revealed, though, is not limited to Israel, though it finds its climax in God's plan for Israel. The mystery has three elements, a partial hardening of Israel throughout history, the influx of fulfillness of the Gentiles to, uh, into the church of Jesus Christ, and the future salvation of, ethic, of ethnic Israel. The focal point of this mystery is timing and the manner of Israel's salvation, for all of Israel will be saved after the full number of Gentiles has entered into the people of God. So what is this all Israel? Because we could literally state, well, all means all, right? That's what we should get out of this text. Well, does all really mean that every single person who claims to be a Jew will be saved? Regardless of their lifestyle or their beliefs, whatever, even if they've rejected Christ, even if they've rejected the Torah, they just claim the title of Jew because of their heritage. Does that denote to the church of Jesus Christ, which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles? What does it entail? Such an understanding of Israel is suggested by John Calvin and has a contemporary representation scholars like Ralph Martin and N.T. Wright. Paul uh, certainly emphasizes elsewhere that believers are true Jews, the true circumcision, and the part of the family of Israel. The context, though, of Romans 11, however, limits Israel to an ethnic Israel. In Romans 11, 17 through 24, ethnic Jews and Gentiles are distinguished in the illustration of the olive tree. Even more decisive is Romans 11.25, for hardening is ascribed to Israel and salvation is ascribed to the Gentiles. When salvation is promised to all of Israel, it is difficult to believe that Israel should be defined differently in these few verses. It is scarcely clear that Paul certainly lurches to a new definition so that verse 25 in chapter 11 refers to uh, ethic Israel, whereas verse 26 refers to a spiritual Israel. In both verses, Paul refers to an ethnic Israel, but verse 25 uh, is describing the hardening of most Israel during the time when Gentiles are converted. Verse 26 promises future salvation uh, of uh, the ethnic Israel. It is possible, though, that Paul suddenly shifts his definition of Israel in verse 26. Yes, it is quite possible. 
but the succeeding context reveals that it is plausible and unpervasive. So what we get to here in verses 28 through 29 confirms that ethnic Israel is subjective to Romans 11:26. For they are enemies of the gospel, but they are beloved by God and the recipients of God's irrevocable promises because of God's covenantal promises to the patriarchs. Paul does not reinstate his argument uh, in Romans 11, 28 and 29 by convincing Israel of the spiritual sense as if Israel compromises as if Israel compromises believing Jews and Gentiles. Rather, he emphasizes again that ethnic Israel is the object of God's saving and elect love because of God's sovereignty and elective grace. So what we are pulling out of this is the simple fact. When we start to boil down, is it really ethnic Israel? Does Paul shift his beliefs? It's possible. Does he shift his definitions? Yes, but it doesn't really quite make sense here. And I want to read 28 and 29, these verses here. But as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts of calling of God are irrevocable. And I kind of stated that a few minutes ago, but I really want to make sure that we understand what is Paul writing here in chapter 11. There are those that God has set aside. There are many, in fact, that Paul has already, or that God has already labeled, and Paul's reiterating what the prophets had spoken of. Just because you claim the title of Jew doesn't mean you are elect, doesn't mean you're a part of ethnic Israel. And we don't really have a, a, an understanding of what ethnic Israel really pertains to. It's not really illustrated here in scripture. It's not defined. It does not give us any light. And I think as I wrote my commentary uh, this past summer on Romans, I got to this section and I tried to be very careful with how we uh, understood Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, Romans 9 is often the text used to describe uh, election and God's sovereign choice over one person over another. Uh, but then 10 into, in, into 11, we get God's view or Paul's view of God's way of bringing faith into the unbelieving heart as stated in Romans 10. And then 11, we have Paul's uh, cries out for the Jews to come back into um, God's grace. So what we have to understand is that, frankly, Scripture doesn't really give us a lot to work from other than the fact that we know that not all of Israel will, in fact, be saved. What we can say is that God does have a remnant, and whatever that desires to for us to understand, we know that God is actively saving those individuals. And we know that uh, from the text that some of their hearts have been hardened through the time that the word has spread to the Gentile nations. Is that still going on? We don't really have a good, clear explanation. Was it only during Paul's missionary work that he, you know, kind of picked this up and wrote on it? And by pick this up, I mean, did God give him the insight through the Holy Spirit as Paul was writing these letters? Obviously, all of the scripture is God breathed. So we know that what we are reading here is what God is wanting us to know. And when we get to the end of this, what we can understand is that God does have some plan for Israel. It's not really clearly laid out, you know, explicitly for us in scripture that these are the things that will happen. But we do know that God is calling 
the Jewish nation into faith in Jesus Christ. And what we can pull from scripture is that Israel will not be saved based upon their obedience to the Torah, based upon their obedience to the pharisaical laws, the ceremonial laws, or whatever else they might throw at you. In fact, the only way they can have or obtain salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. So that is what we can pick up. In regards to the end of times, will God reveal some sort of secret plan for Israel? I doubt it because we don't see it really anywhere in scripture that God has some sort of secret plan uh, or some sort of secret means for Israel to come into saving grace. That has already been revealed to us. That is the mystery. The mystery, in fact, is Jesus Christ. He is the sole point of all of this text. That is what Paul is always pointing us to. Faith alone in Christ alone. And so whether we get to the end of times and we start to, uh, we, we question, is Israel really saved? Well, some of Israel is. We know that God has a remnant. And I think that just falls into line with the elect. We don't know how many people in the Gentile world is elect. We don't even know how many in our own churches truly have saving faith. Well, we can. We can ask them and say, do you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins? And if they declare yes, then we know that they believe in Christ. And there are many in some of these big churches that don't necessarily go for faith in Christ. They go because they want to be entertained. They don't really know the true God of Scripture. They just go because the concerts and the performances are wonderful. So I think we have reached in uh, a conclusion to Paul's writings, and I think we've looked extensively at how Paul lays it out. Now, again, this isn't exhaustive. It's just extensive. Three shows, three hours, and we still probably not even touch the, the iceberg. But we, we started to dig into it and we looked at some of the highly controversial texts in regards to what, in, in fact, Paul is trying to get at. And I really liked last week's episode because I thought we, we really nailed the positioning that Paul is writing from a pastoral position and not just some theologian trying to convey an eschatological position. Paul's writing uh, to the church at Thessalonica as assurance. And he's writing to them to comfort and to show them that God does in fact have a plan for those who have perished. So in all that, I think we will conclude Paul's writings here. And with the simple, this with today's episode, the unbeliever will be judged. And because God's a righteous judge, they have to be punished. Now, whether they believe in the annihilationalist position, we don't see that really in Paul's writing. We just know that they will face destruction. Whatever that destruction actually entails, that's on God's peace. And we can speculate, but that really does disservice. So let's try not to speculate. Let's try to dig into the scripture and actually understand what it's truly meaning. Again, we did that rather well, I think, on the episode two, uh, of hell. And then we looked at the future of Israel and will Israel be saved? And the future of Israel is the continuing of hardening of hearts as the Gentile nations are reached. And at the end, God will save some of Israel through Christ. There is no secret salvation for him. It is simply that Christ is the point. 
Christ is the whole premise to all the scripture. He was the promise of the Old Testament, as Paul has stated. He is the fulfillment to all of that. He is everything that the prophets and uh, everybody spoke to. And we are the ones that get this promise to go forward into the world to proclaim his gospel. And as Jews come into the fold and have been just like Gentiles were grafted into this tree that the gospel was original to Israel, but even Christ knew that many would reject him. We start to uncover that remnant. And uh, I know that God's plan for redemption is through Christ. And that's the message we take even to the Jews. So I think we conclude Paul's letters here and we'll conclude his eschatology here. We might reference it again as we get into the book of Revelation and start to kind of do some throwbacks as we've kind of done here as we've tied into a lot of what Jesus has said in the Olivet Discourse. But next week we're going to look at Peter and the letter uh, that Jude wrote and we will start to unpack that quickly for one episode and we will move into Revelation after that. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to go eat some lunch and uh, I've got to babysit babysit. I don't know. It's not a really right word. My wife's got a thing to go do. So I'm going to watch my daughter and we're going to hang out for a couple of hours while I write tonight's sermon. So, which is on a Wednesday, by the way, if you're listening to this on a Friday, I don't preach Friday nights. So as I babble on guys, again, thank you so much for listening and supporting. If you have the opportunity to share this episode on whatever platform that you listen to share, subscribe, write reviews that helps get this show moved up in the ranks and it helps us to be more visible and uh, it increases our footprint. So whatever platform you're listening to, please subscribe so you get weekly reminders that the show is coming. Uh, we drop every Friday morning at 7 a.m. So please be aware of that. And uh, if you have the opportunity, like I said, please leave us a review. That helps this show move forward. Um, and I would be greatly appreciative of all that. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week. We are going to talk about Peter and Jude. And uh, until then, I don't know if we're going to do a bonus episode next week. Might just take a week off from it. But uh, make sure we check out the last few bonus episodes. We talked about abuse in the church. And we had uh, Seventh-day Adventists uh, this week that we talked about. So go and check those out. And uh, we will see you all next week. God bless. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.